The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Inspira podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. One, two, three, four. Welcome to the Inspira podcast, hosted by your girl, me, Erica Mueller Chen. I'm an international development specialist with over a decade of experience leveraging the amazing power of sport to promote peace and positive social impact. My career has allowed me to live in Europe, Southern Africa, and Latin America. In 2022, I accepted an offer for my dream job in sports diplomacy. And I also became an employee family member to a U.S. diplomat, a.k.a. an EFM. This podcast is all about inspiration and career advice. Each episode, I'll interview an inspirational global changemaker working in sport for development, social impact, or the diplomatic service. This series is perfect if you have interest in breaking into one of these sectors or you've already landed that dream role and are keen to learn from thought leaders. Enjoy today's episode and stay inspired. In particular, as a black woman who comes from one generation away from illiteracy and abject poverty, to be a funder was incredible. It was just incredible to be the person that made the decision about where those monies go. Right, because as a person who benefited from sport for development, as a benefactor, as a beneficiary of that, I would I could recognize the kind of leaders, the kinds of programs, the kind of you know work that's being done that needs to be funded, that needs to be supported, and I saw that without the gaze of white supremacy, without the gaze of classism. Welcome, friends. Today, we are here with Miss Farlone Charity Toussaint. Farlone brings over 15 years of experience as an activist in using sports as a catalyst for social change. She's worked in community relations for several professional sports teams. Farlone has been a coalition builder, previously at Laureus Sport for Good Foundation USA, overseeing the Sport for Good Atlanta. Now, Farlone is the Director of External Affairs at the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport, where she hopes to help prove the power of sport and physical activity to heal communities plagued by the traumas of systemic oppression. Ooh, heavy stuff, Farlone. You've done a lot of things. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. It's so crazy to hear it back, you know. Um, I've done a lot. <laughs> What I like to do before we jump into the questions is because I've called this podcast Inspira, I like to just mention why my guest inspires me, Farlone. So you and I had the privilege of meeting in person, which I actually haven't met a lot of my guests in person before, but I've met you in Atlanta, Georgia, back when I was there around 2015, thanks to a mutual friend and mentor, Mr. Eli Wolf. He is yep. a... A, a celebrity. Uh, yeah, exactly. A goat. <laughs> and uh, among the many reasons I could choose from Farlone, I would say if someone were to ask me one word to describe you, it would be magnetic. 
the way you use your voice, your platform, the way you navigate sport for development spaces to promote social justice, you really demand and deserve all the eyes, all the ears. And I feel like you are a magnet for good. And so I'm so thrilled to have the excuse today to ask you how you do it and, and what you've done. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. You honor me deeply. So maybe for starters, Farlone, I'd love it if you could give us a, a snapshot into your sports journey and perhaps specifically what drew you to sport for social change work. Yeah, for sure. I think the best way to, you know, start this timeline off, it uh, has to start with my background, my family, where I come from. So um, my mother uh, came here as a refugee uh, from the island of Haiti. Um, where, you know, she was seeking political asylum. Um, you know, I was blessed to have been born in this country um, because, you know, I'm one generation away from illiteracy and abject poverty, you know? Um, it's something that's very clear in my mind. Um, that doesn't mean that when I came to this country, everything was paved with gold and everything was great. You know, my mother came here as a refugee and so she lived a refugee life. Um, and uh, we were on section eight on food stamps. And honestly, every time the rent was due, we were probably moving to another place. Uh, what that meant for me was that um, there wasn't much stability. Um, and so honestly, the place that I felt most secure, the place I felt most safe was actually in play. Right. Mm -hmm. I'd find a playground. I'd find somewhere, you know, where other kids were playing. And um, that was a constant for me. Um, it was something that allowed me to stay young. It kept me, you know, my age. Um, and I think for me, I always kind of understood it, but it wasn't until I got access to organized play at school um, where I had access to a coach who picked up on, you know, what was going on at home and really took me under their wing because my mother couldn't. Um, she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia um, when I was in college, but way, way, way before she was diagnosed, we knew my mom was different. Mm -hmm. um, and so I didn't have access to a responsible, um, invested uh, adult at home. Um, I got that through a coach. I got that, you know, um, in that environment. Um, and so I always knew and understood that th something about this was, you know, influencing my life. Something about this was a part of my identity. Um, and I needed to keep it almost like a safety blanket, right? Um, I knew very young that I wanted to be a part of or using sport um, to do what was done for me. Um, and so I found different roles, different ways to try and do that. You know, I thought I was going to be the first female NBA coach. Um, and then I started coaching. I realized I was too emotionally invested in my players and it was just too hard for me to do that. Um, with the right, you know, at the time with the right resources to coach properly, I just couldn't do it in the way that, you know, the system needed it to be done. 
So, I mean, over time, as I continued to learn about the different opportunities in sport, um, I started to really help. It started to really help me understand how I could show up in the industry in an authentic and thoughtful way that still allowed me to reach my my dream of using sport in a way that helped me get out of poverty, get out of, you know, um, the large systems that were pushing up against me and my family. Um, I think it was a very unique pathway. And I saw it work for a lot of my peers. Um, they got to college, they got to the NBA, they got to WNBA, they got to the NFL. Um, I went a very different pathway. So I'm excited to talk more about that. But for me, it really started from where I came from and what I had access to. Thanks so much for sharing that, Farlone. And I uh, don't know if you could see, but I'm wearing my Naomi Osaka Black Lives Matter shirt for you for twofold. Of course, BLM and shout out to Haiti. Yes. Giving us a little window into how sport really allowed you to have these feelings of safety, these opportunities to dream, to be mentored, and now you're doing that for others. And it really, even though you mentioned your path is so different and your path is very unique, it can be said that it's led you exactly to where you need to be. At least, I mean, I'm an outsider in, in this conversation, but being at the center of healing for injustice through sport, it's like, um, I would imagine a match made in heaven for them and for you. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute, but I would love to ask you how you got your jobs in sport for development and peace. You know, this isn't as like heartfelt of a question as what I just asked you, but I would love to know, you know, if there were any you know, secret sauce to how you got to Laureus and now how you got to the center, anything you'd be comfortable sharing. For sure. So I will start this off with, you know, I think that um, I was always an activist at heart, right? Like at my core, my skill set, my strengths, my abilities are very deeply rooted in activism um, way before I knew that that was a thing. So, you know, as a person who was always ready and willing to advocate for others, you know, um, whether it was through my coaching experiences or, you know, just showing up at school in a way that, you know, I don't think other young people used to. Um, I think this really started with an experience I'll call the Audacity to Dream Basketball Tournament. So... In high school, um, I was a part of a group of young people who just recognized um, that there was an opportunity to convene athletes, our peers, in a way that um, could really speak to what was going on in the community. At the time, there was a lot of gun violence going on. Um, you know, at this time in my life, I was actually living in Boston and, um, I was hanging out in Roxbury, Mission Hill, and in these parts of the city, you know, there was just a lot of youth violence, a lot of young people dying. And, um, you know, I think that the young people had a desire to speak to what was going on. So we started this basketball tournament, recruited some of the high, highest, you know, like sought, sought after 
athletes in the Boston public school system and said, look, for entry into this basketball tournament, you have to participate in a conference. And before you can play in this tournament, you need to come to this conference, get some skill building tools on how as an athlete, you are a leader in your school. You're a leader in your community. And the hope was that the basketball tournament would prove to the adults in the community, the leaders in the community, that young people can get together and organize and plan things on their own. And that not one act of violence will be committed, committed that day because we wanted to prove the point that it's not us, right? It's something else and y'all need to deal with that, right? And not us. And so it went off without a hitch, but the basketball tournament got me a really interesting reputation because I was able to recruit some politicians. I was able to recruit some um, Celtics players. I remember uh, Dana Barrows showed up to this game, a Celtics legend, um, you know, and we did it in Mission Hill. And um, I mean, it, it was great, but it got me a lot of notoriety, a lot of um, attention. A year after, um, I was asked by a teacher to write an essay about what, I'm not sure, but I just kind of whipped it up really quickly so that she'd get off my back. And the next thing you know, I'm on stage with Archbishop Desmond Tutu speaking about this basketball tournament. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, it was insane, but I was able to use the basketball tournament in this megaphone way to say, hey, like, we were able to use sport as a way to prove that young people have power. Young people can get together and organize. If we can do this, imagine what else we could do with your support, with your respect, you know? Um, and that's kind of where um, some of my mentors got to meet me, right? If she's on stage with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, she's gotta be going in the right direction. This is where I met Eli Wolf. Um, this is where I met Diana Kataya. Um, you know, these are legends in the sport for development space. And so when you talk about like how my start was, it came from my activism roots. It came from me really seeing the power of sport to mobilize my peers and use the energy of that to do something additional. Right. And then I think my mentors saw that they, they saw that I could mobilize young people, that I could mobilize my people. And they were like, you need more support. You need more tools. You need more whatever. And we want to give it to you. Um, so I think their mentorship, their support through the years has positioned me to, to think about where I fit best, where those skills, where those tools can be best utilized. Um, I think about when I got to Boston College and was uh, focusing on, you know, what should my degree be? You know, my mentors put me in a position where they were like, yeah, I know you wanna be an activist and you could easily go and do some, you know, activist diploma, political science, whatever you wanna call it. But I actually think you need a business degree. I think you need to understand how the bottom line works. I think you need to understand how capitalism works for you to truly be an effective activist. And so, you know, my mentors really helped me understand how to position myself so that I could be a commodity in the sports world, right? Um, I think about how, you know, I was extremely aware of my desire 
to change the sports system, to change the way sports were impacting young people as a person who participated them in them. And when I was introducing myself to people or when I was uh, put in positions or opportunities to speak, I introduced myself as the first female commissioner of the National Basketball Association, right? I think when I think about how I got to where I got to, it was because I was very clear that I was going to be a leader in the sports world, where, how, when, I didn't know. But you know, I wanna make sure people know and hear that there was a lot of intention inside of me. There was a lot of like motivation to be, you know, in a, a particular place. And that helped other people help me, right? Mm -hmm. My mentors just didn't become my mentors because um, they thought I was a shiny, cool new thing that they could take to meetings with them. They saw that I I saw myself somewhere and they wanted to help me get there. And so I know that that's hard for folks, but in a world where it's becoming more and more clear that there are lots of problems to solve, but not many people stepping up to solve them. I think lots of what got me to where I got to is recognizing that I know what problem I'm here to solve, right? I figured that out because of what was agitating me the most in the news, right? What what tweet well, at the time there wasn't Twitter, but what what things were I were people talking about that forced me to force my way into their conversations? You know, um, my mentors were able to put me in the positions I needed to be in because I was very clear about where I wanted to go. And if you're not sure where you want to go, you need to be thinking about what problem you want to solve. You know. Um, and that problem can change. My problem has changed over time. It sure has. Um, but I think that that's what helped me position myself to end up, you know, in the community relations department at the LA Kings or at the Boston Celtics, where, you know, my initial thoughts were, well, if you get into a professional sports team and you're working in community relations, like your impact can be amazing because you have a megaphone you know, you've got superstars on your team. You've got all of these, you know, you've got all of this budget. I'm sure that a, a professional sports team is the place I belong to make an impact. And, you know, you give that a try. You realize that might not be the best fit and you move on to the next problem you want to solve. Right. But people can't help you if you don't know what you want. And I think people were eager to help me because I was very clear about where I wanted to go. That's really, really helpful to hear. Uh, number one, shout out to the mentors encouraging you to study business. As you said, you could have studied anything and you'd still be you and you'd still be ambitious and motivated and a problem solver. But having that business background, like you said, I'm sure has paved the way for different levels of understanding. Like you said, capitalism, systems, lots of, lots of things there. Uh, and then number two, really you emphasized that you knew who you were and who you are and that allowed you to identify your purpose figure out your niche and what problems you wanted to solve and once you were communicating that to people or showing that to people then they can help connect the dots with you and for you and so yeah. telling people what you want or showing them what you want uh, or want to be like you said you're going to be the first female commissioner of the nba right just speaking it out there will make people like 
think twice and be like, oh, like Farlone, she knows what she wants. And maybe I know this person over here that I can connect yep. her with, or maybe she can do this. And that's really helpful to, to know no matter what level we are in our careers. Exactly. Exactly. Quick break here to highlight what I consider to be a fabulous resource that I've created for any listeners out there interested in learning more about the sport for development and peace sector. You've come to the right place. In addition to Inspira podcast episodes that you can listen to, I've created a written resource that you can read, which currently has over 90 items I've curated from my own experience and vetted with other experts in the field. These include databases to find award-winning organizations, links to reports, books, and research, as well as recommended newsletters and recorded webinars, all Sport for Dev related. I encourage you to have a look. You can find this resource by visiting my link tree listed in each episode's show notes, then clicking Erica's Global Resource Hub. That's right, Erica's Global Resource Hub. If you like what you read and what you hear, I'd love it if you could give Inspira a five-star review on your chosen podcast platform and write a kind review. That would be so energizing for me and it would help Inspira reach more ears. Thanks, and back to the show. Three, two, one, yeah. I'm curious, you, you mentioned it a little bit, kind of exploring which pathways were going to allow you to have that impact and maybe more specifically uh, fight the systems of oppression or the systems of inequity that exist in the US and, and of course globally. I'm curious why you have chosen or why you're now in the NGO route and perhaps not the team league brand private sector area of sports, which may have the perception that they have a different level of resources. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Laureus was actually the first nonprofit I ever worked for. Um, before then I had actually spent some time, um, you know, in the for-profit space doing things in that world. I'm, I'm in a really interesting place where, you know, after you've been working in systems change for enough time, you start to see the patterns, you start to see the cogs and the wheels and how the things work. I think, you know, it's been really important for me to be in the NGO space, for me to really understand how things operate on this side of the business, right? How, um how problems continue to persist even though organizations have these amazing missions and these amazing values that they you know project how is it possible right what is the nonprofit industrial complex how does it exist how is it um how is it influenced by capitalism um it's very important for me to understand i've always believed that you can't um, change the game without playing the game, right? If you don't understand it, you can't change it. Um, so I, I don't think I ended up on the nonprofit space intentionally. Um, really, it was a perfect fit for me to be at an organization where they believed in the power of sport to change the lives of young people and the communities that they came from. It felt like a wedding day, honestly, when I got that job, um, because it felt like marrying my passion with, you know, 
the way I make money, the way I make a living, not many people get the opportunity to do what they love for a living. I think about the amazing people I met at Laureus that then created opportunities for me to meet the amazing people at the center. It was actually David Flynn, who is now the executive director at CHJS, um, who brought me into Laureus. Working with Megan Bartlett um, while she was at Up To Us, the relationship between Laureus and Up To Us is a deep one and um, goes back, you know, years and years and years. But I, I bring all these people up because I think like what makes up the nonprofit space are people, right? They are people, they are individuals who have like chosen to dedicate their lives to a mission and are working hard to see that mission come to reality. A lot of these people, I believe, like, like want to work themselves out of jobs, right? Like they believe that like, if they were able to influence these spaces or influence these folks, that they would be able to create opportunities for folks to then lead their own communities, lead their own movements. I'm wondering if you can speak more about your experience as a funder. In particular, as a Black woman who comes from, you know, like I said, one generation away from illiteracy and abject poverty, to be a funder was incredible, right? I showed up in spaces that, um, you know, I don't think most Black women could have showed up in. Um, and not because they didn't want to, but because they didn't have the opportunity to. Um, and I think it was just incredible to be the person that made the decision about where those monies go, right? Because as a person who benefited from sport for development, as a benefactor, as a beneficiary of that, I would I could recognize the kind of leaders, the kinds of programs, the kind of you know, work that's being done that needs to be funded, that needs to be supported. And I saw that without the gaze of white supremacy, without the gaze of classism. I saw that because of where I come from, what I've been through. And um, it was a really an amazing opportunity for me to have that uh, as an experience. Um, I still think the nonprofit industrial complex is a problem, you know, um, and, I am working hard to understand it in a way that um, will help me identify where I fit in best. Um, but for now, I'm really proud of the work that I'm doing at the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport. I'm still looking for the perfect space for me um, because I can see the wheels of the nonprofit industrial complex spinning and I'm watching people burn themselves out, watching people exhaust themselves to death. And I don't necessarily think that that's our purpose or our mission. So people are doing that on a for-profit side too, though, right? Like it's happening. <laughs> At this moment, do you have kind of a vision for yourself or have you kind of put your finger on the next, the next challenge? Uh, no, <laughs> not yet. But I think that that it's important to communicate, especially to your audience, like, you know, this was my dream job, right? This was what I had went to college for, got internships for. This is what I, you know, got mentors for. This is what I did all of that for to end up here as the director of external affairs at an amazing organization such as this. Uh, does that mean that once I got here, 
that like I, I laid in my bed and decided that like, <laughs> is where I die. No, right. Like there's still a, a passion and a fervor in my heart mm-hmm. to really influence and impact the way that sport shows up in our world. Um, one of my, I told you this on the first time we met, one of my wildest dreams is to bring the Olympics to Haiti, right? Uh, because I believe that there is an economic benefit. There's a social benefit. There is a, you know, a, a pathway. There, There's milestones that need to be met for that country to get to that place. And I believe that that one mission, that one goal for all parties to be involved with would truly change the trajectory of that country. Um, you know, that is my ultimate, like, dream goal right and I believe that everything I'm working on or working towards is helping me get to that place um but I couldn't tell you what that role is I couldn't tell you what you know that project is called I just know I feel like I'm meeting the right people I'm spending time doing the right things um to get to the place where potentially I can do that um but everything's still kind of fuzzy and gray. And I mean, again, I'm in my mid thirties. Um, you know, I'm, I'm living the dream doing what I love every day, but I'm still not satisfied. And I don't think every, anyone should ever feel like they will be satisfied. And I know that's probably exhausting to hear, (laughs) but you know, life is about progression, you know, and if you're not learning, you're dead. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned having these different dreams at different points in time, and you are living one of those dreams, but you're not satisfied. And it's different to be satisfied versus fulfilled. And uh, yeah, hopefully you are uh, fulfilled and looking forward to different levels of satisfaction. Um, I'd love it if you can share a little bit more with our audience about the work of the center and maybe any specifics into what goes to a, a... what is a typical week for you as a director of external affairs? Yeah. So, I mean, the center is a startup. Um, You know, we've been doing this work for a long time, um, but we still kind of are a small group of folks kind of running the ship, Um, the headquarters, at least um, speaking. We've got trainers all over the country, one in Australia, um, but Um, As far as like my day to day, because we're still starting up things, I'm doing all types of things, whether it's, you know, on calls to figure out what's going on with the website and what's wrong with it, um, to, you know, um, speaking at conferences or events to help raise awareness about the work that the center is doing. Um, Just for some context here, the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport believes that all sport should be healing for young people. And that's all young people everywhere, right? Our our work is really around how we can influence the youth sports system um, and making it a more trauma-informed and healing-centered space. Um, Definitely a more youth-centered space, but in particular, a space that is more inclusive and safe for young people. Um, we're not um, going to pretend that the sports world um, has not been a toxic one in the past. Um, every year we're hearing about another scandal around coaches abusing their power. Um, every year we're hearing about, you know, athletes who are choosing to, you know, 
remove themselves from the game or remove themselves from their craft because they are trying to um, prioritize their mental health, right? Well, if sport was being done in a healing centered way, then you wouldn't need to take a break, right? Because sport is uniquely positioned to do some amazing things physiologically, psychologically, you know, socially. Um, and yet we seem to be doing sport in a way that is causing harm. And so um, the work at the center is to not only work with coaches who have access to young people and need to understand that there are better ways to do this, better ways to help young people not only um, participate in sport, but keep them in it and have it as a lifelong tool to use for conflict resolution, to use for their own healing or use for community healing, um, but also to regulate stress, right? Understanding how the brain works when you are participating in sport and how um, it's not just an individual change, but there can be community level change if we harness the power of sport properly. Um, we're not only just doing that work, we're also doing the advocacy work, right? We are, we've got an agenda to transform youth sports. That's all about four calls to action around how parents, funders, pro sports teams, athletes, anyone in the sports youth, youth sports ecosystem can really think about their role and how they can contribute to a more healing and more equity, equitable um, experience for young people who we all want to participate in sport, right? Um, our work is really in trying to get that youth sports uh, system that's now a billion dollar industry um, to get some accountability in there, to get some, you know, um, regulation in there um, because we're seeing you know, year over year, less and yes, less young people participate in sport. And we think that that's going to be an issue ultimately in the future. Um, so how we do that just depends on the, you know, week. I mean, I, I spend my time being a part of a lot of coalitions across the country. Um, you know, the pandemic has proven an opportunity for folks to think about working together for collective action. So I'm a part of the Plays Youth Sports Coalition. Um, I'm a part of Sport for Good Chicago. Um, you know, I show up in a way that because I was a, a person who was doing collective action in Atlanta, I have on the ground experience and how that, you know, how that played out, how that worked. Um, I also do a lot of work in trying to get the key messages about the center and what the center does and what the center is about to new audiences. My hope is that we can enter spaces like AAU, club and travel, you know, not just, you know, sport for development spaces that obviously want this work and care about this work and want to make sure that young people experience sport, but also you know, we're talking to coaches at the NCAA, we're talking to coaches, you know, in the NBA, you know, um, we're trying to make sure that sport is a healing experience for all youth everywhere. So we can start thinking about how to use sport to affect justice. 
That's such important work. And as you mentioned, the declining numbers of youth playing or the declining data around kids who enjoy playing or even elite athletes kind of moving up in their athletic career, just recognizing how it's it's hurting them in certain ways. And you mentioned some great things that the center is doing, specifically healing-centered sport and trauma-informed coaching. Well, I've got one more question about careers in sport for development before we, we pivot a little bit. Um, I was listening to another interview you did on the Her Journey podcast, so shout out to Megan Perry. And in that conversation, you advise listeners to not be a generalist. And you went on to mention the importance of specialization for folks dreaming of pursuing a career in sport. So yeah. I'm wondering, Farlone, if you can speak more to this and perhaps provide any examples of specialization in sport for development careers that you've seen or or might encourage people to be thinking about as they try to navigate how they could use sport for social change yeah oh you are good you are good <laughs> did my research a little bit <laughs> i respect it i respect it you know i think that again in a world full of problems right you have a menu of options here right um in my opinion um to choose to be a generalist means to not be brave enough to make a choice, right? And right now where climate change and, you know, politics and, you know, all of these identity issues come to play, it's time to take a stand somewhere. Um, and in my opinion, the way that I was able to choose is because I recognized that I, I didn't want to accept um, the system as it was. I believe that the system is just human beings, right? And um, if we were to think about how to influence and change human beings, then we can change systems, right? Um, that's why I'm so intrigued by the work around the brain and understanding how the brain works. Um, in my opinion, the best way to figure out what your niche should be or what problem you should solve is to really think about what titillates you, you know, what is the thing you want to debate about, you know, and I always felt myself in a position where I wanted to prove to people that sport could do much more than just entertain. Sport could do so much more than just make us fit and confident, right? I saw that sport had a role in you know, the, the way that politics were chosen, right? Like I'm thinking about when stadiums started to decide to let people come into their facilities to vote, right? That increased the participation of any voting system in the history of the country, right? I think about, you know, the way that sport influenced the pandemic, how as soon as the NBA was like, hey, you know what? We're not playing any more games. Well, that's when people started to take this thing pretty seriously, <laughs> right? Like I've always believed in the power of sport to affect change. And so that's what I was fighting for, right? If you care about women and how little women are being, you know, recognized in sport, you know, like that should be something that you find yourself specializing in, right? If you find yourself realizing that like there are some peak performance athletes in 
you know, in the Special Olympics, you know, athletes who are disabled, who are winning, you know, in their own right, right? Like fight for disabled athletes, right? Whatever it is, find your niche and dig deep into that. Because number one, trust me, people have already done immense amount of work in that space. And you need to now find a space for yourself in that space. And if you don't do that work to find yourself space in that space, then you won't gain the support and the respect that you need to proceed. So, you know, in this day and age, generalists, you know, particularly in support for development, you're going to prove to people that you're not brave enough to make a choice about where you stand. I think, yeah, having that feedback that, you know, more and breadth isn't always going to kind of get you an accumulation of experiences. It it may kind of give you a big network, but in terms of specialty or like what makes Erica different, like I need to prepare that so I can communicate that to people and, and get those jobs. People need to feel that energy spewing out of you, mm. feel that passion coming out of you. Yeah. And you're not going to be generally passionate about yeah. anything, right? <laughs> like you need to find something that like people can see it spewing out of your pores, coming mm -hmm. out from your heart. They hear it in your eyeballs. You know, when you walk into the room, they're like, <laughs> that's the sport for social change, chick, right? And like, if you're not giving that off, it's because you haven't found that thing yet. You know, and you're not going to find it in the general yep. sport development space. So, all right. Keep looking, everyone. Keep looking. If you if you don't have that, yeah, that purpose, that excitement around something, yeah, just keep looking and yeah. keep listening. Yeah. Now that we know more about our guest's career journey, the rest of our conversation will allow us to have some fun and get to know our guest on a personal level through some rapid fire questions. We'll then start to wrap up with pointed questions focused on advice and how our listeners can transform interest into action. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. What is your absolute favorite food? I love Haitian food. It is the most mm -hmm. delicious food on the planet. If I could eat it every day and not get fat, I would. <laughs> What is your favorite sports memory? Oh my goodness. Favorite sports memory is probably when I was playing in an adult kickball league and winning the championship. And, oh, wow. you know, like I hadn't won a championship in a very long time. <laughs> um, although, you know what? I'll go way back. Sure. And it would be coaching um, for the Brighton Bengals in Boston, Massachusetts, and them mm -hmm. going 12 and 0. Uh, my senior year of high school and winning a championship ring and a an amazing Letterman's jacket on the coaching mm. that team. So that is a really great memory for me. Love that. Love that. And Farlone, who is your sports team if you had to pick one? I'm in Chicago now, so I got to mm. claim the Bears and the Bulls. <laughs> Do you have a guilty pleasure? Oh man, it's reality TV. <laughs> oh, same, same. What what do you got? What's in your lineup? Give me a few. Oh, the Housewives. <laughs> I can't help myself.
you could invite anyone alive or not alive to your dinner party, give me a few names. Who would you invite? You know, this is going to freak you out, but like, <laughs> I've been really interested in sitting down with Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and, you know, some really interesting folks to just kind of understand them and spend some time, you know, in a space where I can hear them out and, and just listen to where they're coming from and why they're coming from that place. Um, because at this point I'm trying to seek understanding, you mm -hmm. know, I'm tired of judging. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of, you know, that energy. I want to seek understanding right now. So I, I know that I'm like, that's, a, that's probably going to be a <laughs> controversial answer, but I want to spend some time with some interesting Republicans right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that answer. And it, it reminds me of some other things we've, you and I have talked about before, kind of in group conversations before, just about learning and yeah. being around people different than yourself with different mindsets, you know, sport for development, we can often put the champions in the room and be like, yeah, this works. Let's make it work better. But sometimes you need the naysayers. Sometimes you need the other political party to be like, oh, like, I don't know if it works that way. And then see what comes of that conversation. In terms of advice, what advice would you give someone dreaming of making a career in sport for development? I would tell them that there is no straight path, that your journey is yours alone, and to prioritize peace and joy in the process, right? You got to fall in love with your process or else, you know, when you're thinking about a means to an end, you will allow all types of abuse. You will allow all types of disrespect. You must love your process. And if you don't love your process, then stop what you're doing and go find another path. But do not stick with things just because you hope to get somewhere in the end. Find joy and peace in the midst, please. Is there anything you wish you would have known before pursuing this career path in sport for social change? I wish I would have known that, um, you know, sometimes even the most, sometimes the best intentions still create the worst outcome. It doesn't always work, right? No. It doesn't always work. Uh, any other pieces of advice for folks who are like looking to get a job, like they want to work at Laureus, they want to work at the center, they want to work at Sport and Dev, like any tips? I mean, you've talked about kind of putting your why out there, knowing your purpose, finding these contacts, networking. Are there any other words of wisdom or encouragement that you can give to folks who really just want that in? I would just say make friends. Right. Make friends, be a friend. You know, I think that over the years I've watched my network come back to me, you know, networks of people I've known for decades, you know, just make a friend, be a friend, you know, don't just be out there networking for your sake, you know, show up for other people too. How can our audience support you or your work moving forward? Yes. Make sure you follow the center at chjsorg on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. We wanna make sure that lots of people are getting access to healing centered sport and understanding how they as individuals and as teams, as coaches, as institutions can really make sport a healing experience for all youth everywhere. 
Mm. My final question for alone, which I invite you to answer in Creole, if you're comfortable, and maybe a little bit of English too, and take your time, is who or what inspires you? Um, I'll say it in English first. Um, the Haitian Revolution inspires me. C'est Haitien qui, uh, qui fait bien courage. You know, the Haitian community, the Haitian Revolution. Um, I have activism and revolution in my blood and in my veins. And to be from the first free Black Republic on the planet means a lot to me. And I show up in the world in that way. Um, and when people hear my last name is Toussaint, I hope that that invokes that energy in them as well. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Inspira podcast with Erica Mueller Chen. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and found it useful. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources. Specifically, my link tree is there with tons of awesome information. Feel inspired to take action today? I've got three action steps you can take right now because you know your girl likes calls to action and the number three. So here goes. Number one, follow the podcast on your chosen podcast platform. Number two, share your feedback with me through the listener survey listed on that link tree. And number three, tell just one friend about this podcast so they can give it a listen to. And do I have any overachievers out there? I've got a bonus action step, which is to consider supporting me and making sure this passion project prospers. So number four, follow the link to buy me a coffee. That would be pretty amazing. Until next time, stay inspired.